Welcome, everybody, to the 17th episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. I'm your host, once again, Dominic Chapone, uh, joined today by our very first guest of the Dunkin' with Dom pod, and obviously the guy uh, that kickstarted it all here in terms of our guest being on our pod, uh, Aiden Levin. Aiden, welcome back to the pod. Can't wait to be back. It's a great, great time to jumpstart and come right back into it. Well, obviously, it's been, a, it's been a hot minute since we last had an episode. Uh, that was all the way back in uh, toward the earlier part of like this semester, uh, around February. And a lot's definitely happened, to say the least, uh, regarding the NBA in terms of injuries and in terms of changing the standings And uh, as we approach toward the end of this year uh, after this All-Star break. Yeah, absolutely. The NBA has basically flipped upside down since last season and especially since the last time we've met. So I'm excited to talk it out. Well, I want to start here, obviously, with the biggest injury of them all and obviously the biggest headline uh, right currently now in the NBA, and that is the injury of Jamal Murray uh, the other night against Golden State. Um, Landed awkwardly on his knee, ended up suffering a torn ACL on his left knee, out for basically the rest of this year and probably also the beginning of next year. Uh, I want to talk about this for a bit because it affects a lot for the NBA going forward. Yeah, it really does. You can look at a few things, the pressing things that you look at at first are, oh, the Western Conference standings. Where does Denver end up by the end? It's a very interesting conversation to have now without their number two player on the team. They have made some moves in the trade deadline and free agency. However, Jamal Murray is that glue guy, so I'm very intrigued as to what goes on now. So obviously you bring up the standings here. Currently Denver is at 34 and 24th in the Western Conference, but only a half game back from the fifth-seeded Lakers. And they're only three games back from being in the sixth seed. So, obviously, I don't think Denver will fall off to, let's say, the you know the ninth or tenth seed. But, obviously, this place is a wrench in their plans in terms of being a top, a top three seed in the West. But also in terms of Jokic's MVP case, obviously, for it to be very more substantial, it would be nice if you know the Nuggets were a second seed or a third seed. But this obviously hampers things up just a little bit. Look, yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons why MVPs are picked is that they're playing so dominantly on a winning team. So it's really hard to put Jokic at a number one in an MVP conversation when his team can barely make the playoffs without extra help. You know, Jokic, we want to see if he can lead this team to a higher standing by the end of the season, which is much closer than we really like uh, think it is. So I'm very intrigued as to if the Nuggets can win and where does this affect Jokic's MVP race standings. Joel Embiid is playing absolutely great on a one, maybe two seated in the Eastern Conference. So it's really hard to put Jokic above Joel Embiid right now for some people. Yeah, and to bounce off that, in the last 40 years or so, the only MVP who's not been a top three seed or above was Russell Westbrook in 2017 when they were the sixth seed. And again, the only reason because of that was the narrative of like Durant leaving. He had the triple-double year, which had never been done before since Oscar. There was a bunch of stuff behind it. But usually, rather than not, you have to have the whole package. You have to have the individual statistics. You have to have like the... Um, alpha dogness of a particular year where like the narrative is always based around you and your team has to be winning like if you're you know the fifth or sixth seed or you know you're barely making the playing game you're not going to have an MVP shot look we remember about five years ago uh, to six years ago Steph Curry winning back-to-back MVPs in 15 and 16 those teams ended up going to the finals you look at that they were dominant but they had help they were a winning team so you can see cases there you look at uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo the last two years he had winning basketball teams. It's very easy to uh, hide a player's dominant behavior on a bad team. So it's, it doesn't really help that MVP caliber voting. 
And to bounce off in terms of like the Western Conference things, Jamal Murray's been very good this year. Arguably his best season, or definitely his best season statistically from a scoring perspective. He improved his efficiency greatly, especially from three-pointer, because obviously coming out of college, he was supposed to be known as a shooter. He was basically at the league average mark, and now this season on pretty decent volume at over 40% from three. Like, there's a big loss for Denver here. Like, not only did they lose their second best player, but arguably their best perimeter uh, guy in terms of creating his own shot because Jokic can't do it all. Arguably one of their most important shot creators, especially on the three-point line and basically in terms of an all-around game. Like, there's a big deal for Denver when it comes to playoff time. You absolutely said it. Jokic can't do it all. I want to highlight that. Jokic cannot do it all. It's very hard to figure out when Jokic is like a clean passer you and you don't have a perimeter guy to create shots and especially three-point shots in today's league. It's a really rough time to go anywhere far in the playoffs and the postseason. And the more interesting thing about this that I think is underrated is that this happened after the All-Star break, or after the All-Star game and after the trade deadline. Because if this had happened, let's say, you know, three weeks ago, right before the trade deadline, Denver would have probably made a bigger move. Like, maybe they actually put in all their chips on the table and say, we're going to go for Beal. Maybe they, I don't know, go for a, a more qualified point guard. Maybe they put in a first-round pick for Lonzo Ball. It's like, you know, they go get somebody. But now they're basically trying to put a band-aid on a major wound. They just signed Austin Rivers today uh, to a one-year minimum. And he's obviously, like, a good guy, but, like, he's, not, he's nothing compared to Jamal Murray. Yeah, absolutely. This could not have come at a worse time. There is not much after the trade deadline that you can possibly do to combat a loss as big as Jamal Murray. Especially, you look at the, the bubble he had last year. It's absolutely phenomenal. There's not much that comes ahead of that right now, especially when he's playing arguably better than he was in the bubble last year. Yeah, definitely the key this year has been the consistency because obviously he had a, a really difficult start in the beginning of the year. Um, like the first month or so, like the three-pointers weren't going in. He wasn't getting the foul line at all. But like toward the last month or so of this year, he's been absolutely on fire, especially, you know, shooting 50, 40, 90, um, doing a better job getting to the foul line, uh, having some major like 40-point games, you know, 35-point games, the likes of that. I think the one key that like Denver's going to lack, especially come playoff time, is like that upside in scoring, where it's like if Jokic is getting double teamed, who's like the next guy? Is like Michael Porter Jr. going to be scoring 25 a game, or is he going to be like his normal consistent self? Is Aaron Gordon going to like, you know, take a level and like, you know, be a consistent shooter? Like not having that other go-to offensive creator is going to have some problems here for Denver. Yeah, absolutely. You said it perfectly. Is Michael Porter Jr. going to step up and be a consistent player? That's what they need in Denver right now. Is Aaron Gordon going to become a, a consistent scorer? You don't have that scorer that you had in Jamal Murray anymore. So it's a really rough loss to have, especially for a team that went so far to the playoffs last year. I want to bring this into a broader narrative regarding the MVP race, because obviously we touched upon it a little bit, but I want to get really deep into this, because one of the biggest narratives for the NBA going forward for this year in particular is that who is the MVP? Because there's about 13 different guys right now who you can argue are the MVP, or at least have a case for it. There's Every, every one of them has flaws. There's no perfect like two- or three-man ballot. Everyone's got a different top five. You can literally ask anybody down the block, and they're going to have a different uh, group of five or seven than you do. What's been the biggest challenge this year with picking an MVP? Look, there are a lot of fantastic players in the league right now, and a lot of them have not played a lot of games, which is I think is a really big thing. Joel Embiid has not played, I don't know the exact number, but he missed a 10-game stretch in the middle of the season. LeBron James has been out for a very long time. Anthony Davis has been out for even longer. I think he's moving on eight weeks of out. I it, It's really hard to figure that out. Plus, teams that did well last year, have not been doing as well this year, especially in the Eastern Conference. You look at teams like Boston. You look at teams like Miami. 
who you th we thought at the beginning of the season, before the season even started, that we would have some valid contenders for MVP. You look, we thought Jason Tatum, we thought Jimmy Butler, we thought Bam Adebayo. We really, and these teams are just not competing at the same level as they were last year. So that has been a really difficult uh, part to picking an MVP. I think the inconsistency in playing time and the inconsistency in in teams uh, level of play just makes it really difficult to pick an MVP candidate. Yeah, and this uh, obviously this Murray injury affects that MVP argument just a bit with Jokic. But literally, if you look down the list at every guy, all of them have flaws. Like a lot of the guys, as you said, have not played enough. Especially, there's a huge argument for Embiid and LeBron as your go-to top two, and now both of them are now arguably out of the top three or to maybe five because they haven't played enough games. You look at a guy like let's say Damian Lillard and Steph Curry. It's basically two really good offensive players on middling teams, and Jokic also has the same argument where it's like they're like a fifth or sixth seed, but they're not you know a one or two seed. Then there's the issue with the Giannis card where it's like you can argue Giannis is the MVP this year because the Bucks are a top three seed he's putting a better numbers but then do you really want to give a guy back to back to back MVPs for being a poor playoff player and again that's a different story so now the question is does James Harden is this his award to lose because I think he's probably the ideal candidate right now look James Harden has been playing fantastic as much as I hate to say it because I'm a Philadelphia fan and we all know this it is really rough, but James Harden has been playing absolutely fantastic. Kevin Durant is the same boat of not playing enough games, and Kyrie Irving has been playing well, uh, but again, not enough games. It's that whole Brooklyn squad. Um, it's I think James Harden, I think it's his MVP to lose, uh, just like it was for LeBron in 2018 when James Harden won. I really, uh, the narrative behind it is that that team is full of superstars and you can't give it to any one of them because they're all helping each other and that's why they're winning games. It's a very hard narrative to look at, but James Harden has been putting up career numbers in Brooklyn. So it's really hard to not give it to James Harden, even though his team is full of superstars. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. I mean, it's very hard to figure out like, why it wouldn't be hard. And now that Jokic is basically going to be out of the race, because I don't think Denver could be better than, like, a fourth or fifth seed. Like, the, I mean, who wouldn't pick the guy who's, you know, like, the Nets are going to be, like, one of the two best teams in the East. Harden's putting up fantastic numbers. He's played better in the past two months or so than he did when he was in Houston. I mean, I don't think voters are going to overlook the five-game Houston whatever where, you know, um, he tanked those last five games and basically demanded out of Houston. But at the same time, though, like, uh, do you think that matters to anything? Do you think him like doing that early shenanigans in Houston? Like, do you think that should factor into the race that much, or do you think that voters are going to overlook that entirely? Okay, that's a very loaded question. Of here's here's my answer. I think that the voters will overlook it. However, I think it should be counted on because you think of an MVP, you think of the entire season. You think of the entire season. You look at James Harden's shenanigans in uh, the first third of the season in Houston. It just, he had a quality team that just did not play well. And James Harden was not taking any responsibility. And it was very much uh, shenanigans on that side, especially off the court. So I think it's just one of those things that should be um, of, like in the conversation. However, because he's playing so dominantly in Brooklyn, it's going to overshadow what happened to Houston at the beginning of the season. 
that's definitely one of the more interesting narratives to follow here. Uh, but I want to touch on something that I think we knew was going to happen before the regular season started, and that's all the injuries happening around the league, obviously, to the big-name stars. Obviously, LeBron and AD have been out for, like, you know, the last couple weeks or so, and they're still out as we speak. Uh, there's obviously so a Jamal Murray right now, LaMelo Ball earlier this year was out, Gordon Hayward's out right now. Uh, a lot of the other superstars like Tatum, Jimmy Butler, all those guys are suffering on and off injuries. Um, did we think that this was going to happen uh, before the season started? Look, I think... Because of the very short offseason, I expected a very odd NBA season when it came to injuries and it came to player impact. Um, I expected a little bit more like COVID-19 cases in the NBA without the bubble. So shout out the NBA for doing a good job with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, However, I heard a report this morning that Jason Tatum has been using an inhaler prior to every game uh, for the last three months because of COVID. And that that is... Uh, one of those things where it's just it's gonna happen in the league. I expected um, players to get COVID. I expected players to get hurt. They don't have the same amount of training time in the off season and conditioning their body for a next season. Uh, a human body can't go through so much work and so with so little rest. So it's a very interesting experience, especially for the teams that made it deep into the bubble um, with those high quality star players that are now getting injured. Yeah, an interesting point you brought up. I actually read a stat today on ESPN, I think, or somebody posted on Twitter. But there have been more ACL midseason injuries this year, which was four total, than there have been in the past, um, like, 10 years or so combined. It is crazy how pe- much fatigue and... Um, and durability these players are lacking right now because of the NBA bowl. Like, it's no coincidence the Celtics, Heat, Lakers, and Nuggets, four teams who all advanced the furthest in the playoffs last year, have had the most injury problems this year. Even as, like, a team like Miami, who's had a bunch of COVID issues, like, even then, they've also had injuries. Like, literally, there's guys, like, missing like, every other game because, you know, like, of the lack of uh, ability, of, like, lack of durability because of how tired they are. And then you bring up another interesting point. That, um, yes, while they've done a good job, obviously, the NBA with COVID, it's still affecting some players in the league. Like, it's actually been not as bad as I think we all thought it would. I thought it would, like, the worst thing we've had is, you know, the Wizards missed two weeks and, you know, who cares? Right. However, we still seen how it affects. Like, Mo Bamba and the Magic hasn't played all year because he's apparently still having issues with his body. And I don't think anyone's talked about that, really. No, not really. Yeah. Jason Tatum obviously has his breathing problems. And there's some guys who it's like, it takes like, the wind out of a bit. And even if you're a guy like, say, Michael Porter Jr., who, you know, like, now you have the antibodies, like, getting back into the full swing of things like literally going from not playing basketball at all for three and a half weeks to then playing 35 minutes a night you know playing six games in eight nights or something like that like we haven't seen this level of competition and like uh the amount of basketball being, games being played in a certain small amount of time since, like, basically that lockout season, uh, you know, like, 20-something years 2011 ago. 2011 or something, right? No, I'm talking about that and the 99 season, oh, where they played, go. like, you know, a bunch of games, like, two and a half months, and, you know, everyone was getting yeah, yeah, injured yeah, yeah, yeah. how tired Absolutely. they were. Absolutely. So it's a very interesting experience to look into in the NBA, and that you just, it proves what uh, the athlete's body can go through without rest and with little to no time off. I want to talk here and move on to our next topic here that I think is an important narrative, and that's about the Rookie of the Year uh, conversation. Um, Obviously, we touched upon it a little bit with the MVP, but obviously it's been very difficult, arguably even more difficult to pick a Rookie of the Year than it was to pick a, a... um, to pick an MVP just because of all the assortment of problems going on. Um, what have your been thoughts so far on the rookies this year, and like who do you think should win that award? Well, I think the rookies um, have been a good class. I think this is a good class of rookies. Um, I like Anthony Edwards. I like LaMelo Ball. 
Um, I enjoy watching them play. I enjoy their off the court takes. You know, shout out Alex Rodriguez and all. But uh, <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, I think this class is a bit lacking compared to recent classes. Um, I mean, as classes as a whole, you have like those like really good like three to five. Um, but like you know, I we don't have those like absolutely fantastic three to five players in the league right now. You ha- Lamelo Ball was by far the rookie of the year before he got injured, no question about it. And now without him really in the race, it's really hard to decide. Ooh, there are five players that are really close to each other. Um, you just don't know who to pick for that rookie of the year uh, award. Yeah, it seems like Lamelo Ball has probably been taken out of that conversation because of the uh, injury to his hand, and he won't be back either this season or he'll be back very, very late where it's too late for that. Wiseman is a co- uh, apparently out. Yeah, Wiseman's basically well. out for the rest of the year too. And then your problem is that Anthony Edwards is averaging 18 points, shooting under 40% from the field, and is building enough brick houses to cure the homelessness problem in California. Tyrese Halliburton's putting up fantastic numbers, but they're not, you know, the the eye-popping numbers compared to Edwards. Um, And it's basically like a Malcolm Brogdon type case almost, like, you know, during that uh, 2017-18 season, or 2016-17, I think. I think you're right. Uh, I mean, obviously, the only way LaMelo wins is the maybe and beat case of, you know, very great player with awesome stats, but he only played, you know, 30 games or so. And he only played, played less than that, obviously. Right. So, I don't know what you're going to do as a voter, because then the rest of the guys are role players on diff- on uh, good teams who don't get much minutes. R- really good, solid role players on bad teams who are getting way too many minutes and who are like, you know, they're doing well, but, you know, they're not like contributing really well to winning. I don't know what to do here for the Rookie of the Year. Look, I'm, I pulled up right now. I have the official NBA Rookie of the Year ladder that came out today. Uh, they updated every now and then, so it updated today. I'm looking at Anthony Edwards at number one with... Uh, Tyrese Halliburton at number two, which those two are obviously one and two right now if LaMelo Ball is not in the running. Three, like we just said, uh, three, four, and five are basically good role players on bad teams. You know, we have Jay Sean Tate on the Houston Rockets at number three. He has good numbers. However, he's on a terrible team. Same thing with Sadiq Bey on the Pistons. Great numbers, averaging 11 points per game with four rebounds and um, a little bit over an assist. Great numbers. However, his team is trash. And then you have Desmond Bain at five, um, which is a very similar situation. Not a lot of playing time, but a good role player. So it's just, it's a very interesting conversation to have, and it's going to be very difficult for voters to decide what's more important. The amount of games played with high productivity or massive amounts of productivity in uh, very little games with LaMelo Ball. Well, and this has improved, in, or I guess, like, increased in every NBA season since basically, you know, the last 20 years. But there are more guys averaging, like, uh, 18 or 20 shots per game now than there have been ever. There was an interesting stat on, like, a podcast I was listening to where in 2004, only 12 guys in the league were averaging more than 17 shots per game. That number is basically close to, like, over 30. Like, think about that. In a span of, you know, like, a little over two decades, the number of people taking a bunch of jump shots has basically tripled, almost tripled to the extent. And what we're seeing now is the effect of that, where we have a case where there's one guy who has the great counting stats, even though the Timberwolves are the worst team in the league, like, literally the worst team on a talent-wise, even though they actually have some decent players. Then there's the Halliburton case where it's like, the numbers don't look good, but without him, the Kings look like an absolute, like, chickens with their head cut off type show. Right. Absolutely. I mean... It's just it's really hard to look at. It's really hard to decide what's more important and what's the value that you're getting in a rookie of the year. 
I want to move on to the next narrative here, and that is obviously the uh, NBA playoff picture. Uh, we're only a couple, basically a month away from the playing game, uh, and that won't really matter much because I think we just need to more talk about this in the context of the actual top eight seeds and see who the real contenders are. However, I think it is important to focus on both the top of the Western Conference and the Eastern Conference. And I want to start East here because basically it is a three-way race, uh, race for that first seed between uh, the Philly Sixers, the uh, Brooklyn Nets, and the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, I want to start with your Sixers here. Uh, just what are your some thoughts so far for, I don't know, the like past couple weeks or so regarding your team? Past couple weeks, we've been playing really well, really efficiently. I like the way that we're playing. Look, we're tied with Brooklyn for first place. We're actually in the middle of a game right now. My Sixers are up by five yeah. um, as of right now. But we've been playing really efficient. Um, I like the way we're playing. We even played well when Joel Embiid was on a 10-game hiatus going 7-3 and three with one overtime loss. Um, I was... Very happy with how we played without Joel Embiid, and I'm very happy with our production levels. Um, I would have loved to see us make a larger move in the trade deadline uh, to push us up against Brooklyn. However, I think we're doing just fine um, right now, and I'm interested to see how we perform in the playoffs and how well and how far we can go. Yeah, Philly's my little contender here coming out of the East as much as I love Brooklyn. Obviously, there's definitely a lot of questions to go over. First off, is Ben Simmons going to be a productive playoff player or will he disappear in the shine light? Will Tobias Harris step up to the plate because he's been a fantastic regular season player but then has flamed out a couple times in the playoffs? Um, what's the end of the rotation going to look like for Philly? Because there's been years, obviously, where you know, you're know you putting Kylo Quinn playing a couple minutes in like a Game 7 NBA, and NBA uh, Eastern Conference semifinals game and things along those lines. But I really love Philly as a contender for this season i think this team is very different than what we've had in the last few years we've made some larger moves we made some different moves with different uh management the front office of this team and i really think that this team could go far um our bench is way better than it has ever been we have always had a lackluster bench and i think our bench this year is insane um Unfortunately, Dwight Howard's not playing tonight, but Dwight Howard has been a major component to our bench and our defense. Matisse Thibel is top 10 defensive player of the year. Um, Furkan Korkmaz is the shooter we need on the bench uh, with Danny Green and Seth Curry in the starting lineup. Uh, Isaiah Joe has been a great factor. Uh, Paul Reed just came in from the G League. who's been uh, He doesn't get a lot of minutes, but he's been playing well. We do have Mike Scott. Mike Scott, the hive, has been always been good enough for our bench. <laughs> you know, he's good enough. Um, I, I really enjoy this team, and I think we could go really far. I think the only way Philly goes far in the playoffs is they lock in the one seed. Having home court advantage for at least the at least the Eastern Conference portion of the bracket is so clutch. Like having a game seven on your territory is absolutely huge for Philly. Absolutely, Philly fans are the greatest in the world. So it's it's really really important that we have game seven games in Philadelphia with fans. It's one of those things. I remember. It, this could have been two to three years ago now. I went to a game six in Philadelphia against the Brooklyn Nets in the playoffs. It was the series where Jared Dudley and Ben Simmons absolutely got into it. Oh, I know it. that game. I saw that game live, yeah. Absolutely. It was the game after that where we were up 3-2, three, uh, three and it was an absolute blowout of a game, but the Philly fans were just absolutely screaming, enjoying the game. It was fantastic. Our players feed off of that energy, and having that in a Game 7 would be one of the most important things for us to go far in the playoffs. 
Well, and the numbers don't lie. Last season, you guys were played like a you know like the seventy or ninety five, ninety six Bulls at home, but then played like you know the t- twenty eleven Bobcats on the road. This season, you're currently twenty four and or excuse me twenty and five at home, but seventeen and twelve on the road. It's totally two different teams. Like having that home court advantage is crucial, especially against a team like Brooklyn, let's say or Milwaukee. Where, like those are two really tough teams with two really high upsides. Like you need all the advantages you can get, especially in a playoff context. I understand that home court's really important, but I think our Philly fans could show up in Brooklyn for a Game 7. That's all I'm saying. It's not going to be the same, I know that, but I think our Philly fans can show up to New York. It's not that far. Let's go. Let's, if we actually end up with Brooklyn in, a, in an Eastern Conference final, per se, let's get these Philly fans to Brooklyn. Let's get them over there. I want to talk about Brooklyn here because this is a very interesting team here for a lot of reasons. So first off, when we did our pot, our very first pot episode with you ages ago, Brooklyn was a totally two to, uh, totally different team. Uh, LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin weren't on the roster yet. You, they just got James Harden, so we had no idea what was going to happen there. Kevin Durant was basically still out and is now back, barely, but then he's out again. And there's still questions about whether his hamstring will hold up. Um, Bruce Brown went, went from basically being a nobody to now the starting the backup five, sometimes starting center for Brooklyn on defense, but then the corner got an offense. Nicholas Claxton just came out of nowhere. Do you think Brooklyn has the two-way ability to win, or are we still like uh, uncertain about what's going to happen in the playoffs? I'm still a bit uncertain about playoff team. I know that this the, the top three guys, the top five guys, have playoff experience, which is really important in today's NBA. They have the experience to go in the playoffs. However, their role players do not have that experience. Claxton, Bruce Brown, uh, Joe Harris does not have that much experience. He's a little bit... Um, but they have Jeff Green, though, so that's all that matters. <laughs> Jeff Green. Uh, and they have DeAndre Jordan, who has experience with Blake Griffin. <laughs> Same amount of experience as Blake Griffin. So it'll be very interesting to see um, the two-way effect um, on uh, defense in a playoff setting. Because you look at their defense, they're 25th in the league in defensive rating right now. However, since the All-Star break, they're 13th um, with the moves that they've made. Um, I'm very intrigued to see because I was listening to Nick Wright earlier this morning basically saying, we've never had an NBA champion who's been bad at defense. We've never had it. So I'm very intrigued on how this will go. Yeah, so funny enough, there's actually like two sides to this coin that you bring up. Because obviously there's a famous thing that defense wins championships. And to an extent, I mean, they're sort of right. If you look at all of the past teams that have won, they've never had below, below average teams, like uh, uh, averages on defense. Like Even like the Cleveland team that beat the Warriors, they were still like a middling defensive team. They weren't, you know, 27th or, you know, 25th. They were like around like 13 or 14 or something like that. Right. Like if Brooklyn wins this year, they'll basically be the first team ever that ranks the top two uh, offense, but then basically a bottom 10 or so defense. Every champion in the past uh, 10 years or so has been a top 15 defense. The lowest one, I think, is Miami in 2013. They were either 11 or 9. But even then, they were still above average. They, were still, they were still above average, and they can turn it on to make it good at, 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 a, at a good level. And obviously, I, this is a little bit of a hot take for me, but I just think the guys on Brooklyn's rush, I think it's more of like people think they're a super team because of the names, but I don't really like the names on their team right now. I have a very similar theory. You don't see a lot of, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge is not doing a lot in Brooklyn. uh, Blake Griffin is not doing a lot. They're not getting crazy amounts of minutes to do crazy things. You just have that name value that, oh my goodness, Blake Griffin's on their team. LaMarcus Aldridge is on their team. They're both old. And they're both big men. (laughs) And they're both big men. So older big men do not last long in the NBA. Those are the guys that get pushed around, they get physical, and those are the guys that just don't uh, stay long. So the fact that... uh, these guys are so old. 
playing on a, a contender, I don't see much value in that. I still think Nicholas Claxton is playing better than both of them. Oh, and the numbers should. The Nets in limited sample size have been 10 points better on defense uh, with him on the floor than without. And I think it's one of those things where I think people just love to overrate the names. and like, oh, they got Blake Griffin. And I'm like, Blake Griffin like runs on razor blades for feet. Like, he literally can't dunk, jump or dunk anymore. He is like like a spotty three point shooter at best. He plays the same position as your best your best player, and arguably your best center. In terms of Lucas Aldridge, he basically has been in quicksand for the last three years. Like he's just nothing more than you know a mid range jump shooter, like you know a spot up guy in the corner. But he can't play any defense. And yet again, he's also taking minutes from guys like you know DeAndre Jordan and Nick Claxton, and even you know the Bruce Brown, Jeff Green five minutes or all of that. So I don't know. I'm just not a huge fan of Brooklyn's roster. I think it's one of those things where I might like their top three and maybe even top five, arguably. But after that, though, there's like, where are they going with this team? I like their younger players more than I like their older players. I like Nicholas Claxton. I like Joe Harris. Joe Harris should be getting more minutes in Brooklyn, but please don't give him more minutes. It'll help my, my own team. Yeah. But, like, I like the younger guys more than I like the guys who were good in their prime but are now just liabilities on defense and even offense at this point. Yeah, I want I want to that's actually a really good point you brought up too cuz it's like even like if they came in like they were you know like 80% what they formerly were. It's not like they were good either. Like the Marcus Aldridge had one good game against OKC, you know, many years ago like in that 2016 season and then basically was a terrible playoff player. Blake Griffin has never been a good playoff player. Like even against that random uh even against all those Clipper seasons, like he wasn't, you know, like the best of the best in the court. It was probably CP3 arguably. CP3, yeah. So like I don't know, I just think that there's a lot of like questions and those questions haven't been answered yet and I thought they would be and we're still uh, out here in the open. Like Brooklyn can either again win the championship or lose in the second round. There's still even a guy who we I'm just thinking of this now, but there's a guy that I think they like that's still very old, but it's still an older player that could benefit more than both of those two guys that uh, is not in the league. But he could be in the league. He's keeping it open. And that's Jamal Crawford. <laughs> that I still think could be better than... You still have Jamal Crawford's talk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit. But I still think he could be better than Blake Griffin on that Brooklyn team. The signing I wanted from them was the guy that the Spurs got, Gorgie Jang. He would have been the perfect 10 to 15 minutes a night center. Can block shots. Can, you know, shoot threes okay. But at least just, you know, not kill you. He basically would have been like the slightly better Kyle Quinn on your team from, you know, like that 2019 season. Right. I really think that he they should have gone after him. Or at the very minimum, some form of defense. Because even in their close five. Let's say it's Kyrie, Harden, and Durant for sure. Durant is playing on one working leg right now. Basically. Harden has never been a good perimeter defender. Post defender, we can argue differently. We can. Kyrie, when um, I guess, you know, active has been okay at best. Joe Harris has never been an above average defender, and we can argue that whether he's in there or not. Bruce Brown, if he even is in the closing lineup, is arguably your best defender. And at that point, that means you're playing Kevin Durant at the five. Basically. So, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, Nick Claxton might be your best Defender, maybe Jeff Green, but like you're. Jackson is definitely, in my opinion, the best defender. Can we argue they don't have more than two above average defenders on this team? Because besides Bruce Brown and like Jeff Green, if he wants to be, and maybe Kevin Durant, I don't see it. I can argue. I can argue one with Claxton. Claxton is definitely an above average defender, no question about it. Um, and then you can you can argue Bruce Brown, you can argue Jeff Green, but neither of them are getting a crazy amount of minutes to prove it. So it's really really hard to like prove that they're good defenders without the proof with the defense and the minutes in games. Oh, I want to move on to the last of these three teams, and that's obviously Milwaukee. I feel like they're the interesting team in the Eastern Conference this year for a bunch of reasons. So first off, 
um, they're basically in the middle territory of the Eastern Conference because they're not uh, quite close enough between Brooklyn and Philly for that one spot. But they're also above the Hawks, Celtics, Heat, Hornets uh, collective in that four through, you know, whatever down the row. What do you think about Milwaukee as a playoff team this year? I understand that there's been a t- time and time again a flame out. Mike Budenhoser is still the coach. The the team, you know, is like a solid seven-man core, but there's various questions. Like, how do you feel about Milwaukee this year? Look, they're three games back from first place, and there is a massive, massive drop between third and fourth place. So Milwaukee is still absolutely a contender. They may be three games back between Philadelphia and Brooklyn. However, the four-seed Atlanta is seven and a half games back from us. So it's they're still in the race. I have no issue. I still think Milwaukee is a dark horse. I think they can play the game well. Uh, their core is well met. Unfortunately, I think they've gotten worse with the addition of Drew Holiday. Um, surprising enough, I really thought that team was going to be a top seed, um, like a top one prior to the season with the Drew Holiday move. And they just paid him a lot more money. Uh, four years, $160 million, if I remember correctly. I don't know how much guaranteed. Um, it's just very interesting that they're can't get past the third place mark, um, with a team that was arguably better at the beginning of the season and not now. So to touch on a couple of things you brought up. So first off the holiday extension, I somewhat agree with it. I feel like if you basically just let him go for nothing or try to get him at a discount, he was going to walk to another team. Uh, I think it was more like you had to pay him. Like we knew they were going to pay him. And it actually helps Milwaukee a lot because now all those draft capital they gave up are basically worthless now because as long as you have Giannis on your team in Middleton, you're going to be a top three seed in the Eastern Conference guaranteed. So I think that's pretty good for them for the Agreed. most part. We can talk about whether that will age well or not. That's a different story. That's a whole different story. I think the question with Milwaukee more of is like, what is their ceiling? Because Giannis this year has been very good. And arguably he can be the winner this year of the best player to not be top five in the ballot this year, even though he's putting up a 30, 12, and 6 every night. Um, I, my fear with Milwaukee is basically, what is the bench looking like? Because it is a little bit iffy after that starting five. You're right. It is iffy. I was talking earlier about how the sixer bench is really important to us right now. That's going to be the difference maker between a uh, contender in the Eastern Conference and a pretender in the Eastern Conference. The bench on that team is looking a little iffy in Milwaukee. It, it scares me a little bit to think that um, they, it's, they can't get the uh, scoring that they need off the bench. Uh, that's something really important for a contender to have because uh, you can't play all of your guys 48 minutes. This isn't Tom Thibodeau. We're not doing this all the time. This can't be a thing in the playoffs. Even Giannis, who looks like a freak of nature, uh, can get burnt out. So we can't let that happen if you're Milwaukee. Um, and you just, you need more scoring off the bench. Yeah, no, I think the problem with Milwaukee, I think, like, so Milwaukee, like, at the deadline, I think actually, like, did a good thing. Because I think the P.J. Tucker move assigned, we now know what the starting, or the closing five is in Milwaukee. We know is going to be out there as a guard. We know Middleton and Giannis will be there. And then we know that it's going to be probably Lopez and Tucker in some fashion. Now, you can argue whether they'll go, or I forgot about Drew Holiday. Right. So it'll basically be Giannis, Holiday, Middleton, DiVincenzo, and then Tucker. So we know, like, what that, we know what their five-man unit is in the final five minutes of a playoff game when they're up three or down seven or whatever. Right. I think the problem, though, is the bench. So, basically, uh, like, after that five, you got Brooke Lopez, who's a center, and basically plays the same position somewhat as Giannis, and centers are pretty unvaluable in the playoffs, especially, like, he's been bad against Embiid. He's too immobile to guard Kevin Durant like those guys. Agreed. Even, like, a guy like Bam Adebayo is probably better than him, and, you know, can just, like, run by him. Yeah. Brooke's too old. And then you look at the other guys, it's like they have Jeff Teague as their guard, which is like, oh, God. Um... They have a couple other guys who I'm just, like, not just too thrilled with here on that bench. I'm thinking of, like, 
Derek Wilson. Um, not my, like, it's that's like the name I can think of off the bench in Milwaukee. It's very, Bryn Forbes was a good addition that they made in the offseason, but he's not playing a lot of minutes. He's not doing. And he's only a shooter. Like, literally, the only thing he can do is spot up. Exactly. Of which, fine. It's not great. But you need but to be more than a spot up guy. I agree. You need that in the playoffs. Um, Bobby Portis is not doing much for you. He's the worst defensive player in the league. <laughs> uh, fair enough. I can, I, you can argue that all you want. Easily one of the worst. Pat Connaughton. Not doing all too much for you this season, especially. Um, there's these guys that are okay at one thing and then can't do a lot of other things. So it's it's very hard to decide, oh, who are you going to throw in um, to play defense and to try and score against these these stacked uh, teams in the Eastern Conference? Uh, there's not too many, so the top two. You know, like, you're not going to have many guys, uh, like, on the bench who can score against a Matisse Thibel on the bench of... Um, of Philadelphia. So it's very interesting to see how that, those matchups will work in the playoffs specifically. That's honestly one of the most fascinating matchups that I can't wait for. If Assuming the standings play, let's say Philly stays one or Brooklyn goes one. Milwaukee playing one of those two teams in the conference semifinals is going to be absolutely crazy. Absolutely. It's going to be a very interesting matchup to see uh, if Giannis can pull through and lead that team over arguably better teams. Because the question is, if you're Milwaukee, what do you do moving forward? Because if you lose again, you already have this Giannis Middleton holiday core intact. I guess the next move is fire Budenholzer because in terms of a roster construction, uh, you basically have no money. Lopez is still on that big contract for another, like, you know, two years or so. Yeah. So I'm guessing that's what you do, right? I mean, Budenholzer would be the first to go in that, in that stance. Um, Giannis really is that critical point, that cornerstone of that team. So, like, Giannis will never go. Um, Giannis loves his core players. Giannis will advocate for his guys to stay. Middleton will stay. Drew Holiday is, is locked in for another four years. Uh, these guys don't have much of a choice. But Budenholzer basically, like, and the GM, I don't know who the GM is by name, but basically they just have no money left to sign anyone else. And if this is the team that they have for the next few years, uh, basically with the same core, it's not looking too bright in the future of the next five years for Milwaukee. I want to move on to the Western Conference here because without a doubt, this is the most interesting conference to talk about. So for now, let's just assume that the Rockets and Timberwolves are for sure gone from the playoff picture. The Thunder and the Kings have both lost seven games in a row. They're probably out of the playoff picture. Yep. That leaves us with 11 teams fighting for 10 playoff spots. And you can make a case that there's about seven contenders out of that group right now. So I want to start with the top eight here because obviously the wild card for the standings this year for... Um, the Western Conference is the LA Lakers. Because obviously, LA, or uh, excuse me, not LA, AD and LeBron are both still out. We don't know when they're going to come back. And how they're, well they'll be back. Yeah, and how well they'll be back, A. B, it messes up Utah's plan because Utah's whole plan all along was get the one seed, have the two LA teams face each other, one of them gets away, and then we can sneak into the conference finals. There's a chance they might be able to have, have to play LA in the first or second round. Right. So what do you think is the biggest problem here with the Lakers in terms of how they act as like this wild card come playoff time? I just think that this team just doesn't know what to do without LeBron and Anthony Davis. They they're They look like they're playing as if like they're chickens with their heads cut off. I it's just it's hard to watch. Um I really don't understand how they'll do um 
go moving forward. I don't know if Anthony Davis will even be back. He's supposed to come back, obviously, but he's been out two months at this point. He's missed yeah, most of their games. My fear is that they report on the injury thing, like, oh, he'll be out anytime from four to six weeks. Every time you have, like, an Achilles problem, it's never four to six weeks. It's no usually question. over two months. Absolutely. And, and they always, like, under uh, value. Value how much time you miss, yeah. Absolutely. So this team, without their two best players, is just very – you don't have, like, that – third guy um your rotation is just you don't know what rotation you actually have you have all these guys getting random minutes throughout games uh it's very hard to figure out like what their actual core is without lebron and ad so it's it's hard to even measure how they're gonna do because you don't know who they're gonna put in and what's gonna happen la is the most interesting team in this entire thing. Because look at it right now. Currently, they're 34 and 21. They're seven games back from the first seed, so they're probably not going to get a, a first seed. Right. They're actually right now all basically four games back from the Clippers for the three seed, so they're probably out of reach from that too because Clipper, Clippers have won six in a row. They're looking like they're turning it up. Yeah. The interesting thing is right now, right now they're playing Denver in round one, which is absolutely crazy. Let's assume they win. They're playing Utah in the next round. Like, if you're Utah, you hate that right now. Like, do you think Utah like should be incentivized to not get the first seed, or do you think... Because the case where it's like, if Utah has the first two, they get home court for the entire playoffs. They play better at home than they do on the road. Yep. On the flip side, though, you're going to be playing a harder team earlier. You don't have a way to guard LeBron or Anthony Davis. Like, what do you do if you're Utah? Look, they're 25-3 and three at home. So I think that is one of the biggest uh, standout things you can look at for Utah. I think Utah will always try and go for that one seed to have the one seed. Um, I do think it's a harder path. However, they want that home court advantage. Any team will want that home court advantage for the, the entirety of the Western Conference playoffs. It is very crucial for Utah, especially because they have like a, such a strong fan base um, in Utah, to have that home court. Um, however, you don't know. It's really hard to tell because LeBron James has only really ever been injured like very much, like twice. This is his first. This is basically his second major injury, and arguably you can say this is his first. Absolutely. Even the groin thing wasn't that bad. Yeah, it's not as bad as what he has right now. So we don't know how LeBron James is going to come back from this injury because he's never really come back from an injury before. So uh, it's really hard to tell if the late. Uh, the Jazz even want to play. The Lakers, I think they have no clue because they don't know what's going to happen with LeBron. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the wild card for the Lakers is that, on the one hand, they're 6-4 and four in the last 10 games, which is really good. And I guess that proves that like, their core this year actually is better than they were last year, or without a doubt. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, though, they've had a couple easy games. This is the easier part of their schedule, and it's supposed to get harder. Right. And the interesting thing is just, like, where do they end up? Because as of right now, like, let's say they fall to 7. If you're Phoenix, you do not fight your way to the second seed just to play the Lakers in round one. Yes. If you're, let's say, I don't know, the Clippers. Like, imagine if the Clippers and Lakers thing happened in round one. Like, imagine if they're, you're the Clippers, you have a chance to make the finals, and you have to deal with LeBron and AD. I don't know, like, do the Clippers want to face the Lakers? Because on the one hand, AD and LeBron are still a lot of questions to be had. But on the other hand, they're the two best players in the court in that series without a doubt. That's debatable. But, um, anyway. <laughs> it's a hot take, a little hot take. A little bit, but, you know. um, I think, like, if you're the Clippers... You obviously don't want to play the Lakers in round one. However, as of right now, you're not playing the Lakers in round one. So you're kind of banking on the fact that, like, you keep your seed. You try and get even higher if you have to. Obviously, you want to, as a team and as an organization, you want to win games. Um, so they're 38 and 18 as of right now. They're three and a half games behind first place or two games behind second place. They still have an opportunity to move into that, too. Um, just do whatever you can to move up and not to face the Lakers in that middle pack area. See, but I want to 
stop you there. I think the key this year is honestly getting the first seed because here's why. If you look at so look at the top seven teams in the in the West right now. It's Utah, Phoenix, both LA teams, Denver, Portland, and Dallas. Right. After the eight down, like I would want to play those teams any day of the week. Like if you're Utah, you want to face the Spurs in round one. You mm-hmm. want to face the Grizzlies or the Warriors with like half their guys depleted in round one. Like like think about it. Let's say the Clippers move to the second seed and they're t- and they're like you know they're chilling there. They're like right in the middle between the first and third. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to play Luca in round one. If I'm if I'm the Clippers, I don't want to be playing Damian Little in round one. Like I don't like the West is loaded this year at that top seven. I agree with you. It's really I think the the middle pack of the four five is not as good as the six seven. So it's like you either want to get really high up at one or you want to drop and and play um and so you don't have to play those six seven. So it's really difficult to like try and coordinate that. You're obviously not going to throw games or anything, but like. I, it's very hard. I wouldn't want to play Luca and Kristaps Porzingis in the first round of the playoffs. But there's a chance it can happen, though, because, for instance, say, you know, you're Phoenix and, you know, you're, like, a couple games ahead of the Clippers for the two seed. Right. But then, you know, Dallas is the seven. And let's say, I don't know, Denver is the se- Like, I would rather play Denver right now. On, like, out of all these teams, I would rather play Denver or Portland, probably. Because Portland's not a good defensive team. Denver's missing a lot of their key guys, and their rotation's a little bit thinner than I thought it would be. Yeah. Their upside's very low. If you're Phoenix, I mean, you want to try to play certain teams. Your goal is to make it as far as the as you can you've already crossed the bar of making the playoffs they're going to be in the playoffs this year for the first time since the the days of steve nash and that's awesome but now you want to think bigger than that because chris paul's in a limited timeline booker you have in the middle of his prime right now like this is a a time to move forward and like i just think that you want to like maximize on that uh, time i mean anything can happen in the nba we're seeing it right now where like one moment you know the raptors are winning the title and then you know two years later they're not even making the playoffs this is the team that devin booker has the best chance of winning with in my opinion. Obviously, I don't know what's going to happen later on in Devin Booker's career, but this Phoenix team, it has the best chance that Devin Booker's ever had of winning a title. And this is really important because Chris Paul boosts any team that he's been on. We've, we've seen this in the last three years, four years of Chris Paul on different teams. We just, we really just need to figure out what does it take to beat these other contenders in Phoenix? So I have a quick question here. Uh, Chris Paul MVP case, how are you feeling right now? Top 10, but he's not going to win. Well, here's the case for Chris Paul. So basically a 16-5-9 every game. The Suns are basically the second best team in the better, better conference in the NBA right now. He's basically turned the team from 500 team that basically was a bubble team last year to arguably an NBA contender. Like, don't you think that qualifies enough for an MVP conversation? I mean, the team's doing well. He's putting up decent numbers. The efficiency's really good. He's been durable this year, and that's a lot a big question for him throughout his career. Like, do you think it's uh, good enough, or do you Look, think the resume's lacking? Look, I think it's a good enough resume. It's just that the, the NBA is all about narrative, and I just and I understand that the narrative for Chris Paul is really good. The problem is, one, Chris Paul has kind of been overlooked in his last three seasons. Um on any team he's been on. And I just, the, there are other narratives that are better than Chris Paul's. You, wait, you know what's the scary thing right now that is I just that? realized? Is that Chris Paul can arguably be a top five-ish MVP candidate, and yet he might end up no higher than third team All-NBA. No, think about it. I agree. Luka, you have Luka, Dame, Harden, and Curry all as and, guards and ahead Mitchell. of Chris. Not even including Mitchell, who has a case. 
Uh, Trey Young, who might probably have a case, we'll see. But, like, that's crazy how Chris Paul might be a, one of the best MVP candidates this season and will barely crack the All-NBA this year. Yeah, Chris Paul is just an underrated player this year, no question about it. His story in the last three years of just elevating every team he's been on, especially young teams, uh, has been outstanding. So shout out Chris Paul. He's one of my favorite players in the league that I've ever had. Uh, my second team growing up was always that Lob City Clippers area era. Um, so I love Chris Paul. Um, I think he's doing a fantastic job in Phoenix. However, I think that uh, he, he's going to get overlooked again. So that's the issue. So I want to talk about one last NBA topic here. A little bit of a funner one, but obviously kind of a somber one. Uh, the other day, it was officially the one or the anniversary. I think it was five years since Kobe's last NBA game, the 63-point nuking uh, of the Jazz, where he absolutely turned it on in the fourth quarter. Um, did you watch that game live? And if so, I don't know, just like tell us a little bit about it. Or like, what was like some uh, some stuff that stood out to you from that night? That game was absolutely outstanding to watch. 60 points in Kobe Bryant's last game. Listening to the interview of. Shaq saying, I challenged Kobe to 50. He got me 60. It was an electric, electric game to watch. Me and my friends actually all got together that night to watch the Kobe Bryant last game. Because, look, we were the um, the generation that saw the the 24. I'd say that the era of 24 Kobe. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Not as much like the 8 Kobe, of course, because, you know, we were... A little bit younger. We were a little bit younger. We know we are definitely more of the LeBron generation, but like Kobe was always our guy. Um, it it was a fascinating game to watch. We were all just our our eyes were glued to the TV. Every time Kobe would do anything, we'd cheer. We were looking at the crowd in that game. The crowd in Staples Center was absolutely electric. Uh, it was so it was so so cool to watch. Um, that will forever be my favorite NBA season that I've ever lived. Oh, with. absolutely! So I, it was just a great way to cap it off uh, for the regular season. Well, funny enough, I dedicated an entire book or an oh, entire chapter of my book to talking about that season of how crazy it was. You had that same night, around the same time, literally people were choosing between Kobe's final game and then the Warriors winning 73 games because they were both around the same time. Right. And more importantly on that night, it was just crazy how it turned out because Kobe not only scored 63 points, which is amazing, but, like, look at the context of the game. The Lakers were around the whole time. Everyone thought they were going to lose the game. It was the most points scored by a um, by whatever age Kobe was at that time, like, ever in history. Even, like, Jordan's, like, was surpassed that night. Right. And then you look at the antics of it. Like, there were shots that Kobe was hitting that, like, literally, like, nobody thought he would be hit. He would Kobe make. hadn't hit those shots in five years at that point. Yeah, no, of course, remember, this is already, like, Kobe after like, the Lakers were terrible the whole year. Uh, he was washed completely. Like, you know, the injuries already got to him. He was, it was, it was his last year, as you can put it. And I think what made it so special, especially, um, as like a non Lakers fan is that like, even like, I never grew up watching Kobe, at least from like, as a LA perspective. Like, I wasn't, you know, tuning on a Lakers game every night because, you know, I was a Heat fan. We didn't do that. And yet there were so many moments where like Kobe balled out and yet, I feel like the stat line wasn't good that game in terms of, you know, like the amount of shots he took and all that. And yet it was easily my most favorite or my favorite Kobe Bryant moment ever. I couldn't agree more with you. I'm a Sixer fan. Kobe Bryant went to the high school that my cousins went to in Philadelphia. Um, my, I have family members that, um, that went to the same high school. Uh, my friend of mine's dad actually was on a high school team that played against Kobe Bryant in high school. Um, I actually... Uh, attended the Philadelphia tribute game after Kobe Bryant passed away. Um, they had his Lower Marion High School jersey, number 33, in uh, in a glass case at the center court. Uh, the Sixers all wore numbers 8 and 24 in warm-ups. 
Uh, it was an absolutely just, it was a somber night, but it was uh, very, very much dedicated for uh, one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Um, very uh, experience I'll never forget. Yeah, definitely no other way to put it. I want to ask you one last question here. Obviously, we're wrapping up the NBA season here. We're about a month out from the playoffs. Uh, what are you looking forward to for the rest of this NBA season? Ah, uh, there's an easy one for me. I can't wait to watch my Sixers ball out in the playoffs. I can't wait to see what happens in the Western Conference. I, I'm super excited to find out who takes home this very strenuous championship um, so I, with a lot of injuries and COVID and all this, this is definitely one of the better championships and better playoff runs to see, because all these guys are out to prove that they can come back from injury and lead their teams. I'm very excited for the rest of the season. All right, Andy, thank you so much for joining the pod. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, and the same thing as always. We have new episodes coming out every Tuesday and Thursday available on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We will be back for our regularly scheduled program uh, next Tuesday. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening and have a great rest of your day. See ya.